It's past me. I cannot figure the fucking angle. Go ahead and fucking fight him. All right, then. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. My name is Sean T. Collins. I'm a television critic, and I'm the author of Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse, which is available for purchase right now at mzsworldstore.com. And joining me is my illustrious co-host, Gretchen Felker-Martin, horror author and film critic. And today we will be discussing what you have just heard the introduction to, the infamous street fight from the third season of Deadwood, specifically from an episode called Two-Headed Beast, written by series creator David Milch, directed by Daniel Minahan. And the fight scene itself stars W. Earl Brown as Dan Doherty and Alan Graff as Captain Turner his arch nemesis for the time being, at least for a very short period of time, really, when you think about it. Yeah. A couple episodes. Yes. And I have told this story already on the sort of prologue episodes to this podcast, but as I said, this episode comes fairly deep into the run of Deadwood. It's in the middle of season three, which is the third and final season. And I remember vividly watching this because of the physical sensation that followed it, I had a splitting headache afterwards. And it's in the middle of the episode, so I'm like trying to watch the rest of the episode while holding my head at my desk because I was watching it at lunch, and I was like, why do I have this headache? And I realized it was because after a certain point in the fight, I stopped breathing. I just, I literally held my breath until I apparently couldn't hold it anymore and gave myself a headache that way. It was that tense. It was that engrossing and frightening and scary a fight scene for my money it's the best fight scene i've ever seen yeah i can't i can't argue and don't want to i feel like this is something that i talk about a lot with relation to television but when the actors you're watching are people with very relatable appearances things become much more engrossing and this is two heavy set middle-aged guys who like look like multiple men that I know in real life and they're winded maybe 10 seconds into it. Not, not because they're not formidable, but because that's just how bodies work, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. There's nothing superhuman about it, but it's so desperate and vicious and ugly. God, I mean, just no part of it conforms to any of the common dramatic logic around fight scenes in film. Yeah, I love it for that reason. I really do. And I have two things to say about this specific aspect of it. The first is a quote from a wrestler. I I hope you are sitting down. I'm going to invoke wrestling. Oh, wow. Yeah. From the wrestler Big E, who is a, a big dude and a very funny dude. And he once very famously said, you want your five-star matches? You want your 30-minute classics? Not me. Big, meaty men slapping meat. That's what I want. (laughs) And that's this really does feel like an old-school Dusty Rhodes versus Harley race for the NWA championship in some fucking arena in the South in 1978. Just like they're just big dudes who are just using what like all their physical power to pound the shit out of each other. Big meaty men slapping meat. Big meaty men slapping meat. And in fact, they slap actual meat at one point because they come crashing into a meat store. 
Oh, that's right. Right there on the thoroughfare. And like, all of a sudden there's like, you know, I think Dan Doherty pulls down this huge fucking side of beef or whatever the hell it is. Yeah. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think. No, no not, not at all. It's a, it's supposed to be a direct conflation to the unfolding awareness that the audience has of what a body is made out of and what yes. happens to it as you beat on it. Yes. It's the consequences that, uh, yes. that make, that make this fight. And the other thing I wanted to say, and then I'll kick it to you is that um, when I was primarily a writer about comics, my friends joked that there, I was like three writers in one. I was the horror guy. I was the fight scene guy. And I was the pervert. Cause those <laughs> are my three areas of interest in comics. And for fight scenes, the things that I always like to see, whether it's in a film or a television show or a comic, is one, I want to understand the spatial relationships between the combatants. I don't just want disjointed shots, unless it's Speed Racer, which is the exception that proves the rule. I don't just want disjointed shots of fist flying or laser shooting. I want to be able to understand in space where the people are and how they're connected to each other. Related to that, number two, I want to understand the consequences for landing or hitting each individual move that they try. Like, I want to know, like, if they hit this, oh, that will affect this change in the fight. Or if they miss, then they're screwed for this reason. And three, I want it contoured to the environment, which is a little bit different than saying make use of the environment. Like, I don't necessarily care if, like, I don't know, you know, if he took the meat and slapped the guy with the actual side of beef, like... Right, I, you're not I, looking for Jackie Chan doing chair karate here no right right i just want to i i want the fight to feel like a fight that could only take place in this you know the way that the environment shapes it it can only take place this way in this space and that's really what you get here in the muddy thoroughfare that is this the spine and the lifeblood of deadwood the community and deadwood the show it's muddy it's messy it's crowded it's overcrowded and it's full of people who are watching these big dramatic morality plays of life and death play out and just sort of standing around spectating. And yeah. it, it has everything that I want in a fight scene. In addition to being even still so different from the majority of fight scenes that you see because of the reasons you said, because it's big meaty men slapping meat, which you don't normally get guys with normal bodies just trying to tear each other's body apart. Yeah. Both, uh, both Captain Turner and Dan Doherty are, you know, they're they're both, they've got that sort of beer gut muscular build. Like they're they're guys with both a lot of fat and muscle mass. Yeah, which is what very strong men look like in real life. Mm -hmm. You know, because the the cut effect that is so popular in in casting now is achieved by like targeted dehydration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they 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 look more like uh, not quite because of the size of the people involved, but they look more like the mountain or you know people who do like strongman competitions exactly. who aren't who aren't bodybuilders. It's a different, it's a whole different thing, and it it makes such a huge difference to this fight. It really yeah, does. It really does, and I, you know, I think that that rule holds true throughout all of film and television but here especially the immediacy of their bodies the familiarity we all have with bodies like theirs 
is so pressing and it's so intense. And what you said earlier about consequences, about understanding what each punch means mm-hmm. and about the way that this fight is about breaking down a human body. Mm-hmm. That's something that's so absent from contemporary choreography, which is, is all sort of people zipping around and, and delivering these punches that arbitrarily either kill someone or knock them through some gigantic pratfall. I'm thinking about superhero movies here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is something this is, this is not directly related, but I guess it has some bearing. I was sitting through a superhero movie that I wanted to review recently. Uh, Venom with Tom Hardy. Mm-hmm. And it sucked. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stunned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but halfway through, I was like, this is a little more enjoyable than like the other ones that I've watched. And I haven't watched one of these movies since, um, I think, the Thor one that everyone loved that is the only film I have ever fallen asleep during <laughs> in a theater. <laughs> Ragnarok, I guess. Yeah. It's garbage. It's nothing. Mm. Um, That's one of the good ones, supposedly, by the way. Yep. I have I have heard and heard and heard. <laughs> um, but anyway, the reason that I realized I was enjoying Venom more is that he has a specific power. And it is thus, like, possible to anticipate what will hurt him or won't. Mm. And feel that there are stakes in a situation beyond, like, whim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um you know, like uh, Thor and Captain America and the Hulk and all of those guys are just sort of nebulously strong and difficult to kill. And right. it's, it's so fucking airless and joyless. And this is this fight in Deadwood is the antithesis of that. It's your dad and your uncle getting drunk at Thanksgiving and killing each other in the parking lot. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the fight scene that it feels most similar to that I can think of off the top of my head would be Tony versus Bobby Bacala in yeah. Sopranos home movies. Absolutely. Home movies. These two huge guys just beating the shit out of each other over uh off color joke during a game of Monopoly. And you feel frightened for the participants that you like, which in, in the Sopranos case is both of them. Right. Uh, in Deadwood's case, it's really just Dan Doherty who, I mean, I guess I should say to set this up, what you're dealing with here is a sort of proxy conflict between George Hurst, the robber baron and Al Swearingen, who is sort of like the warlord of this town, mm-hmm. Deadwood and captain Turner, who is Hurst's man has called out Dan Doherty specifically. And what Hurst wants to happen is a demonstration of what happens when you stand up to, to George Hurst. And so he gives him specific instructions before the fight to like, make it last, right. you know, like it doesn't need to be right. It doesn't need to be pretty. That's in fact, the point is for it not to be pretty, like hurt this guy a lot publicly for a long time until he dies. And that winds up being an instruction that kind of fucks him in the end because right. he's, he is on the verge of winning and has to look up for approval. And at that moment, Doherty extracts himself from, you know, one of the one or two, most dire straits that he's in during the course of the fight. And, and claws his eye out. Right. 
and claws his fucking eye out. He claws his fucking eye out. How have we yeah, not said a, this yet? It's a full-on Cronenberg moment. Like, his eye is hanging down his cheek with the, the raw optic nerve. It's so fucking disgusting. Like, re- revisiting it for this podcast, like, it goes on for fucking ever. He's yeah, screaming. His, oh, the scream is so horrible. Oh. <sighs> It's not like it's not a reaction. It's an emotion coming out of him indefinitely. Yes. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, this dude, this guy can act. Like yeah. those screams, like, that's real horror. That sounds like a person who's heard bones break and yeah. seen people's like fucking femurs come out of their legs. Like, cause he was, he was a football player and stunt choreographer and fight choreographer. He did a lot of work doing the football scenes for various sports movies and stuff. So like, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. He's a guy who kind of understands what happens when bodies collide. And I, I, it just feels to me like he found that scream somewhere from his sort of mental reservoir. I have no idea if, if that's the case, but like that is a scream for the ages. Oh, it's phenomenal acting. And I think the worst part about it is how it's, um, like his breath acts as a metronome through it. Mm-hmm. So it's scream, gasp, scream, scream, gasp, scream, gasp. And there's just this sense that that body is never going to do anything again, but that. Right. It's, oh, it's so terrible. It's so awful. It So much violence is calculated to look cool. And just, just so the record is completely straight. I think that's neat. I like it when violence looks really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, like in dread when Carl Urban throws Lena Hetty off the balcony and she falls 200 stories and splatters in slow motion on the ground. That rules. I love it. But this is so purposefully horrible to watch. And yeah. that is something that I really treasure even more. I mean, there is such an urgency to this fight. Mm hmm that you cannot get if your aim is to entertain. No. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Cause there's this, this breathless buildup to it where, you know, you have this exchange of, you know, Hearst wants to make sure that the message gets to Dan, that captain Turner says, I know you're afraid of me. And Dan has to get permission from his boss, Al Swearingen to actually have the fight. And Al takes a long time deciding whether or not to approve it because he can't figure out why, this challenge has been laid down at this particular time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think throughout the course of the episode, if I recall correctly, Hearst is also murdering union organizer union organizers. Yes, he is. So that's why, you know, he's, he's trying to take out all of his, he's, he's making an example out of all of his opponents in one fell swoop. But Al at the time doesn't really have much of a way of knowing this. I don't think. And then you see Dan preparing by literally greasing his body uh-huh. so that he's harder to get a hold of and having a kind of argument uh, with one of the other Swearingen minions who offers like, hey, you know, if something goes wrong, you drop flat and I'll blow the guy's brains out. And he's like, you better shoot yourself next if you do that. Like, he is I'm not having this. Yeah. Right. It's This is all in the honor system. Like, they both make a point, in fact, when they're approaching each other to, like, make a big show of taking off their belts where they have their knives uh, in holsters and or in sheets, excuse me, and like putting them aside. So like, this is going to be a hand to hand fight. We're not going to stab each other. We're not going to shoot each other. It's just man to man. 
Uh, you see Captain Turner warming up with Hurst, and Hurst recalls a story of another fight, again, that he prolonged deliberately to make a point to the people who are watching. And you're right. Once you actually get to the fight, after all this buildup, and after all this like mounting tension and dread on Doherty's behalf, because you've seen what tough customers Hurst and his man are, it's this sloppy mess. It doesn't look cool. And to bring it back to superheroes for a second, my most recent experience with the genre was the truly abominable the cap the the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, one of the shows on the Disney Channel, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, the choreography there was clearly designed to make everybody look cool, but nothing fucking mattered. Right. You didn't need to. It could be taking place anywhere at any time under any circumstances involving any set of superpowered characters. Things only matter at random when the plot needs them to. Like for the first time, I think ever in the history of the Marvel universe, you actually see one of these punches that throws a person across the room, kill a person. It's like the very first time that like blunt force trauma to the head manages to kill anybody. Good Lord. And it's just done to spur his buddy. Who's like the new fake captain America to murder someone in cold blood afterwards. There's really no, like, it's just, it. it's random. It happened at random because all, everything that happens in these fights happens at random. Like it's just, everything is crisp and snappy and pointless. And I hate it. I fucking hate it. Oh my God, Sean. It's so, it's so airless. I remember, mm-hmm. um, this this was years ago now, I guess. But one of those movies has that big stupid fight in the parking lot where all the superheroes are wailing on each other. Right. And it's just... I mean, it's a low blow to go look at the green screen before. But it's literally just ten guys running at each other and then, like, doing stupid LARP moves. Yeah. That's it. And it it could happen anywhere because it's literally happening in a cube. There's right. no scenery. There's no set. They couldn't even go to a parking lot to film this. They could not be fucked to go outside. It's fucking grim. And I don't understand how in a post Yun Wuping world, you get away with it. How did you get away? After the Matrix existed, after Kill Bill existed, you have a genre built entirely around people punching each other. Right. 100%. And and that's the best you can do? It's fucking it's flabbergasting funny. to me. It's funny because there's that ramp through the 90s and early thousands where Jackie Chan is at the peak of his popularity in the American market. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Kill Bill comes out and popularizes sort of the samurai movie for the first time here. In terms of pop culture, obviously, you know, Seven Samurai and Sword of Doom are classic films. Sure. But, and then all of that intricate choreography just vanishes. It's, it's like blink and you fucking miss it. Yep. And like you said, you know, fucking Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, too. Oh, my God. Yes. All those like the art house, like Hero and... Uh, House of Flying Daggers and right movies where the action is extremely over the top, but also completely and totally legible. Yes, I mean, 
in the Marvel movies, there are instances where people are, are shot with energy blasts and it either matters or it doesn't. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. Yep. Which and, is just the most infuriating thing in the world to me. And honestly, from my experience with superhero comics, it's been a long time since I've read a superhero comic. I'm going to be perfectly frank, but that was one of the big problems with that genre when I was reading it. Like, yeah, it's fucking horrible. There, there, there were writers whose work I appreciated, like Brian Michael Bendis, who at one point was writing like four or five books a month that I really enjoyed. But I always hated his fight scenes because what he would do was he would kick it to the artist and he would be like, two-page spread, fight scene. And then what he would do is he would have inset panels that would show the dialogue that the, the, the characters were having. Usually the heroes, usually quippy. And it's like, you're literally telling the artist to say, draw everything you want, just make sure that nothing matters because it ha- we have to have this conversation during this fight. There was no tracing of action from one beat to the next. And that's doable in superhero comics. I've seen it done. You can do it. Like, Frank Miller, say what you will about Frank Miller. There's a lot to say. Man can choreograph a punch. He sure fucking could. And he even when he was just writing, like in, in the book Hard Boiled that he did with Jeff Darrow, who wound up working with the Wachowskis, makers of The Matrix, on The Matrix and a lot of other things, like there were fight scenes that like would go on. There would be like a full page fight scene that was like 50 panels. And it was just like one punch after the next. And like you would trace the progression of the fight. And it was brilliant. It's doable. And that's when I see this fight in Deadwood, I'm like, what's wrong with these genres that are based on fights? Like, this is what you can do with this. Right. This is not even an action show. Right. It's a, it's a show with a, a small handful of action sequences over the course of three seasons. Right. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned um, Alan Graff's experience choreographing football for film. And that's what the, the first shot of the fight reminds me of when they're running at each other. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. They, they come together in this, like, linebacker crash. Yep. Oh, and it's so... There is this real sense of, like, sport in that that manly sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you never see a fight scene begin with a clinch like the way this one does. Never. No. You know, uh, another good example of a fight scene that starts with that kind of, uh, what would you call a moment? I mean, I guess a clinch is the proper term. Yeah, in wrestling, it's a lockup. You know, whatever. Right. Yeah. I think there's something like that that happens in Game of Thrones. That's That's a show that really seesawed back and forth with the quality of its choreography. Game of Thrones did? Yeah. Yeah, I I guess you're right. I mean, cuz here's the thing. I remember the 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 first big fight scene that you really had in Game of Thrones was Bronn versus Servardus Egan in the Eyrie, mm-hmm. and I loved it. Oh, it's I great. loved it because again, it has all my rules. You understand the spatial relationship between the two combatants. You understand the consequences where they land or hit each move. And, and it can only happen there. Right. It's contoured to that environment of that room with the pit and the columns and the the onlookers and all that kind of stuff. And it was the first time I had seen a sword-based fight scene using the construct of big meaty men slapping meat. This is big metal men slapping metal. Like yeah. 
your goal was to take your hunk of metal, which is sharp, and f- hit the other guy with it until they've been cut to so many ribbons they can't fight anymore. Like, it was one of the first times I really felt that in a sword fight in filmed media ever. And I I really, really like that. And it bought me, a, it bought the show a lot of goodwill for me, I think, in terms of its its fight choreography, you know, which in general, you really didn't get very, like, you didn't get that many mano a mano fights in that show. Like the emphasis tended to be on large battles, but. And I think, I think once it started filming those battles in earnest, that choreography to my mind is quite impeccable. Yeah. But I'm thinking of the mid season stuff where like, you know, Sir Barristan and Grey Worm and Dario Harris go into the city and it's them versus like a million guards. And it just, it sucks. <laughs> it just sucks. It's like something out of fucking Hercules and Legendary Journeys. Yeah. And the reason is that it has very little relation to the bodies we see on screen. They're not important. They're just doing what the plot needs them to do so that the next thing can happen. Right. I think a better approach to that kind of like, we're showing you individual fights, but it's part of a larger fight was in the watchers on the wall. Oh yeah. Where, where the, they have that really incredible shot where the camera swings around 360 degrees in the middle of the fight in the courtyard. And every, like at every turn, there's a character, you know, versus a character, you know, maybe one who you like, maybe one who you don't, maybe you like both of them, but they're like, it's, each individual person uh, is having their own individual fight. And you, and the, the way that the camera's movement ties it all together and makes you feel the gestalt of it in a way that you couldn't, if it was cutting back and forth between the different fights the it's whole time. Such a, you know, not to take this back to Marvel again, but it's such a wonderful answer to that really unfairly famous shot from the first Avengers film where the camera heavy, heavy scare quotes, because it's almost entirely CGI. Yeah. Moves through New York and, and, you know, chances upon each superhero doing something super heroic. Which I remember liking simply because it was the only interesting thing that the film had done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the context of the film, the Avengers by Joss Whedon, it's tremendous. Right. It's, it is the Citizen Kane of being in that terrible movie. <laughs> um, which means it's merely boring garbage. Right. You can, you can safely say, Joss, you have truly outdone yourself here, and do that without fear of contradiction. Yes. He has outdone himself in that shot. Yes. As- Draw your own conclusions from that statement. <laughs> <laughs> Later, he outdid himself by taking a shit. Um, but it's that same approach where you're trying to create this cohesive sense of a, a fight and center the people involved in it. Yeah. But on the one hand, you have believable stakes. You have an environment that really matters. You have all of these people who... A, you know, and B, you know, are extremely mortal and vulnerable because you've seen a bunch of people exactly like them die. Yeah, you sure have. And on the other hand, 
you have a cutscene from a promotional video game. Mm-hmm. I mean, for Christ's sake, I interviewed Neil Marshall about that episode, and he told me that one of their biggest concerns was that to do that shot where the camera swings uh, 360 degrees, they had to move the camera so fast that it probably would have killed someone had it hit them. Yeah. So, like, that was their priority. It's like, please stay out of the way of the camera. It will kill you. And I don't mean to make light of the safety of the actors or the stunt performers, but, you know, you fucking feel it. Yeah, you, you do. Like you, there, the, like you said earlier with regards to the Deadwood fight, there's an urgency. And it's communicated on in what you see. And that makes it makes such a huge difference in terms of really everything in terms of your appreciation of it as a fight scene and your just emotional engagement with it as a thing that's happening to characters who you know and care about. You know, another element of the fight in Deadwood that has stuck with me over the years is the way that the episode and the show in general builds Dan up as this very sort of adolescent man. He's Mm. not, He's not mature. He never seems like a man in the same way that Al is a man. Right. You know, he's less confident. He's not assured with women. He doesn't have like a regular gal on his arm or anything. And he's also insecure in his connections. You know, he is constantly looking for praise and affirmation in the same way that a teenage boy does. And on the other hand, you have Turner who is so definitively an adult. Yeah. He's a captain, man. Yeah. So physically and in affect in, in terms of just the way he behaves and carries himself just a totally different. He's in a completely different place in his life and he's a completely different kind of person. And it adds this real sense of ugliness to the fight. Like, like it's almost inappropriate. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There is something... Um, it's funny because I believe in the first episode you see uh, Dan commit one of the most cold-blooded murders in the whole series, right? When he dumps Alma's husband off a cliff. That might be the first episode. It might be the second. second. Either way, it's very yeah, early. it's very early. He's no prince, is what I'm trying to say. I, 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 no one who works for Al Swearingen is, and nor is Al Swearingen. For no, ha- I mean, Dan is a is a murderer. Yeah, but there is something almost childlike about yeah. him because because of the way that he and his pal Johnny, who's the guy who's sort of coaching him through his his prep routine. And even Silas Adams, who's kind of like a dapper Dan compared to Johnny or Dan, but still is a second banana through and through. There's something, there is something about second bananas that, at least where Al's milieu is concerned, that makes them sort of childlike. He's the father and they're the sons. Exactly. And I think in Hearst's case, just even in the dialogue that that Hearst and Captain Turner have about this other, this earlier fight where Hearst is like, well, that was a fight. And Turner's like, not how I remember it. And, and Hearst is like, well, no, my point is simply that it went on for a long time to make a point. You get what I'm saying? And he's like, yeah, I understand. That seems like a much more 
equal relationship than what you get when when Swergen says frog, Dan jumps. Yeah. So there is something that puts him. Yeah, he 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 is placed on his sort of back foot by that compared to Turner. When the two of them square off, it's not really a meeting of equals. No, it's it's a man beating a man child. Yes, that's the word for it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And uh, you know, I, it's not that I think that in any like moral or legal sense that Dan is like less culpable for his actions or anything, but he's just more pitiable. Mm-hmm. You know, Turner has even on a physical level, Turner has these tiny little eyes and this very inexpressive face and looks just sort of shark like. And Dan has big eyes and very mobile features and like a patchy beard that really uh, makes him look sort of undergrown, even though he's, he's quite a big guy. And we've also seen him quiver and hesitate and lose his nerve before. I mean, the first episode, a lot of the drama centers around the fact that he is unwilling to kill a child for Al. Yeah. So he's he's a guy who we know will hesitate, and everything we've seen of Turner suggests he won't. Yeah, and even the, their preparations, right? Like, as I said, you, you watch Dan as he greases himself up to make himself harder to hold. And in fact, you actually see him grease his dick. Like, yep. you see his hand go down his pants with the, with the gob of grease in it. Whereas... Captain Turner is just doing sort of like Jane Fonda aerobics beforehand. Like he's just yeah, kind just of like, calisthenics. yeah, he's doing calisthenics. That's a huge difference between the two of them. Before the fight happens, you watch Dan, like put his hand on his like most vulnerable part. And, and you know, just in case, just right. in case Turner. the other guy grabs his fucking dick and tries to pull it off. Like Turner is fully clothed. Yep. And as far as we know, not greased. Yeah. And uh, that makes a big difference. It really does. And yeah, Turner- I mean, you, you see Dan go in planning in a way that suggests he's aware he could die or suffer some horrible injury. And Turner just does not communicate that at all. Yeah. Turner's like another day at the office, you know. Right. And that plays out after the fight is over. Yeah. Where Dan is just in this depressive funk. And, you know, I'm looking at the transcript here and, and Johnny says to, to Al Swearingen, I wish you'd look in on Dan boss, not for being poorly as down. Like he's not physically hurt so bad that you need to make sure he's all right. Like mentally, he's a fucking mess. And cause Johnny's like, you know, I've seen people, I've Dan's killed people. You've killed people, but I've never seen either of you like this before. And Al's like, well, yeah, because normally it's not a fair fight. We try to avoid that when we can, you know. Right. But when it's when it's just you and another guy, and you're watching the lights go out in their eyes, that's a different story. And you need to let the person who did that work through it on their own. Right, um, they're up against the wire of their own mortality. Yeah, yeah. That never enters into the equation when you knife someone in the back or cut their throat from behind, mm-hmm. which is typically how Dan and Al kill people. Yep. It's it's not an ex, it's not a struggle. It's not typically the other person doesn't even expect it. Right. Yeah. There's you, no sense that they're even enemies to them. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is not Robert De Niro making sure Wayne Girl looks at him in the climax of Heat. Like, right. that's not how these people operate generally. So, which I think is part of why this sequence and this scene, this fight scene, hits so hard after everything you've seen in two and a half seasons of Deadwood, which is a fucking lot. You've seen a lot of things happen. You've not seen two sort of cool customers. I mean, you've seen shootouts, you've seen shootings, you've seen murders, you have seen street fights. Like you saw, you've seen by this point, Seth Bullock and Al Swearingen beat the shit out of each other in the street. But that was like a temper's flare kind of thing. Right. You have not seen like, I challenge you. I accept your challenge. Here we are, two guys. We're going to square off until one of us is dead. Thunderdome. Yeah, Thunderdome. You haven't seen Thunderdome. And it hits hard when you finally see it. It really does. Good God. Yeah, after all these years, this. It's still. I, I really do still think it's the best fight scene that I've ever seen. And I rank it with stuff that's very, very different. Like. You know, another fight scene that I think about all the time is is the so-called Duel of the Fates because of the song. From, That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, the Phantom Menace. Yeah, which is, is about as, as far away from this as you could get. Right. It's elegant and sweeping and grand and operatic, I guess is the word. It is. It is. But it still has my three little rules of thumb. You understand the spatial mm-hmm. relationships between the combatants. You understand the consequences for when they land or hit each move, and it's contoured to the environment that the, the fight is taking place in. Majorly so in yes. the case of, of the, the fight between Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi on one side and Darth Maul on the other. It makes a huge difference. The fact that they're in this weird space of like bottomless shafts and force fields and all these kinds of things. You know what else I would compare this fight to a little bit more directly? And I bring this up in part because of the actor in, or one of the actors involved, but it's it's uh, the Roadhouse fight between Patrick Swayze's character and Jimmy, uh, Brad Wesley's right-hand man, when they fight on the beach and Swayze's character winds up killing Dim- Jimmy. But that, I think, similarly was a fight that was like largely choreographed by the participants and was nasty. It, it's, it's a very ugly fight. It is. It is. It's not ugly and sloppy and messy in the way that the Deadwood fight is, but like, there's no, there's no room to breathe in that fight at all. Like, from the moment it's on, it's on. And every single thing that they do matters in a life and death way. Like every punch, every kick, every time they pick up a piece of driftwood and hit each other with it. Every time they get involved with like the, there's like a tree standing there. Like every single thing that they do has immediate impact on the sort of future of this fight. And I bring it up because I don't think I've said so, so far, but Alan Graff, the guy who played captain Turner, he is in roadhouse and he's in a fight scene that, I actually also like a lot, not as much as the beachside fight scene, but it's it's a scene in which um, the mo- the single most forgettable character in Roadhouse, a guy named right, Gary the guy with Ketchum, the knife, yeah, the knife the knife boot. He has a knife in his boot, and he and three other guys from his like Bible study group show up and and attack 
uh, Swayze's bar and get repelled. And uh, I wrote a book about Roadhouse. It was one of my favorite discoveries was that this guy from one of my favorite action films is in my favorite fight scene of all time. And I feel like he brought his skills to bear in both cases. And I really appreciated it. Yeah. He's a, he's a remarkable craftsman mm-hmm. as well as a, a great actor. Alan Graff, if you're listening to this, we love your work and we appreciate you. I hope he does listen to this. I really do. That would be really cool. I would, Wouldn't I it? would be, I would be so flattered. I would say that the fight that comes to mind most immediately to me when I think of this, and, and this is like a, a more of a one-to-one comparison. Have you ever seen uh, Eastern Promises? Yes. The David Cronenberg movie where Viggo Mortensen is a Russian mobster. And there's this scene where he gets attacked by two hitmen in a sauna. Right. And he's, the, he's bare-ass naked. The naked sauna fight. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, it's it's not like nudity typically is in American films. Not that this is an American film, it's a Canadian film, but you take my point. Mm-hmm. Usually there are artfully placed pieces of scenery or the shot is angled such that the dick and balls are out of frame. And not here. Not here. <laughs> no, his his junk is just flopping all over the place. And it's so, God, it adds so much to the tension of it. And I think, like, it's something that a lot of fight scenes sacrifice even before the jump, is the sense of vulnerability that comes with thinking of the penis and scrotum in a non-comedic way. Yeah. Because it's agonizing to be seriously, intentionally hit there. It really does suck. I remember having that conversation with many a girl. Like, can it really be that bad? I'm like, mm, it's that bad. <laughs> well, I'm I'm not like other girls. I understand what it's like to be hit in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> I, it reminds me of a scene in the otherwise execrable. I believe it's the drawing of the three from the Dark Tower yeah. series by Stephen King, oh, where th- one of the characters. I don't even remember his name. I hated those books so fucking much. They're god awful. I can't even be. After a lifetime of reading Stephen King, I finally gave in. I was like, I want to read The Dark Tower, the books that's tied it all together. Because every single glimpse of continuity between different Stephen King books that you get up until that point, it's so, it's like unbelievably exciting. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, you mean Randall Flagg's in more than one book? Oh my God. Like, you, you just, you freak out. And then it's like, oh, this is the thing that ties it all together. I can't wait to read it. And it's dog shit from start to finish, really. Awful. The the original version of The Gunslinger is very good, I think. It's like Robert E. Howard. It's good. The revised version and all of the other books. Garbage. Absolute trash. Anyway, I can't even remember the character's name. He's like, I think, a junkie who recovers. Oh, Eddie. Eddie, thank you. And he, he finds himself in this fight. In the scene with these like awful, ridiculous, I've only seen The Godfather, and that's my sole understanding of the mafia, mafia <laughs> guys. Uh, and he has to leap out of the bathroom naked to shoot them all. And Roland, the 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 titular gunslinger of the gunslinger, compliments him and is like, you know, not many people can fight with their dick hanging out 
or whatever he says. Probably nothing that nothing's entertaining is what I just said. <laughs> and and you know, yeah, like that's a vulnerability. Like Eastern Promise is needed to actually go through with that. Yeah. To make that scene work. Like you couldn't just be like, oh my gosh, they're naked, but you're not actually seeing anything sort of flop around, you know? Right. He had to be believably vulnerable, and that is one of the more powerful ways to get to that. Yeah. Viggo Mortensen, who, by the way, is no slouch where fight scenes are concerned. Like, very famously in The Fellowship of the Ring, he was hired last out of everybody because the prior Aragorn was not working out. And because they cast. The prior Aragorn? It was Stuart Townsend who played Lestat in Queen of the Damned. Lord God. And they, they realized, you know, sometime after months of preparation and, you know, however many weeks of shooting, they were like, he's too young. This isn't working. Yeah. So they replaced Vigo Mortensen got the call and had to be in New Zealand two days later or something like Ooh. that. And he ran it by his son, who was a huge nerd. And it was like, of course you have to play Aragorn. Are you fucking kidding me, dad? <laughs> um, God bless. So uh, that was the scene on Weathertop where he fights the Ringwraiths is his first scene. And to see that guy swing that sword around in that scene, like just the mechanical precision with which he like repels like the worst things on earth man he took to it like a fish to the water so props to cronenberg for recognizing that he has like an action film prodigy on his hands and doing something with it but you need that detail of the fucking meat slapping around you know no pun intended right um (laughs) or else it doesn't work it doesn't work as well and i i think and i say this as someone who really loves the Lord of the Rings movies and feels a deep connection to them and thinks they are unequivocally wonderful films. Those are not films with an especially intense sense of immediate mortal peril in an action scene. Yeah. No, you know, it's, it's not as egregious as the Hobbit movies where Jackson was rushed and under a lot of studio pressure, but neither is it, a terribly um, honest or authentic view of, of that sort of pseudo medieval combat. You know, people are not down in the mud. People are not fighting for their life with the last inch of strength that they have. And I think that that those movies sort of make it up with atmosphere and, you know, things like Gandalf's speech about, what it will be like to die. Yeah. So it's not that you have to go to the floor every time. It's just that there are things worth going there for. Right. God damn. Mm-hmm. I think I've said about all I have to say about that. Yeah. I think I'm in the same boat. I love revisiting the scene. That's all I can say. Like I, every time I do it, I'm sort of awed and new by what they were able to pull off. It is the best fight scene in film. Yeah, I think it is. I really do think it is. So that's the gauntlet laid down, filmmakers who are listening to this. Yeah, top top, top this shit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> David Cronenberg, make another crime movie challenge. <laughs> Peter Jackson, cast some people with their dicks hanging out. Yes. Forget the Snyder Cut. I want to see the Lord of the Rings where everyone is just hanging. Just bare-ass nude. (laughs) Yes.
<laughs> All right. All right. Well, this has been Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. I've been your host, Gretchen Felker Martin. I have been your other host, Shanti Collins. Join us in two weeks for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Bye bye. <laughs>